Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our morning service, um, particularly if you're a visitor. It's great to have you, you with us. We do hope you'll stay for some refreshments after the service so we can get to know you a little better as well. Well, this morning's psalm is going to be preaching from Matthew 1 under the title God's Hope Despite Our Mess. I'd just like to read some verses from Ephesians 2 as we start um, that describe the mess we were in and the love that God has shown towards us. This is from the CV translation. Once we were also ruled by the selfish desires of our bodies and minds. We had made God angry and we were going to be punished like everyone else. But God was merciful. We were dead because of our sins, but God loved us so much that he made us alive with Christ. And God's gift of undeserved grace is what saves you. Let's pray as we start. Father God, we do praise you for your mercy, that you've not treated us as we deserve, but have instead poured out your love on us and given us new life in Jesus. So as we gather together in your presence this morning, we pray that you would reveal more of your love to us in him. We pray that we will be filled with your peace, your joy and your hope and would want to live lives that are pleasing to you, for your glory's sake. Amen. Great. It's always good to hear different stories of how people uh, have come to faith and how they're growing in their faith, how God is continuing to uh, help them and change them. And this morning we're going to hear about um, the story of James, James Harker. James, you want to come up to to the front, and uh, we'll ask him a few questions. If you uh, grab that mic there, and... uh, some of you will know him from when he was a young lad. Um, tell us, um, when did you first start coming to Long Crendon and what was it or who was it that um, caused you to come, come here? I first started coming when I was 15 and it was Rob Fairweather who I was in his class at school. He invited me to a couple of social events and from there I met um, Tim and Ali and a few other people and Chris Mitchell Moore was the youth worker then and just through that started attending regularly. Mm. So 15, so only just a few years ago, then not, uh, yeah. not too long ago. And, and then you moved away from home. What, what caused you to move away? And what um, happening then? I, my best mate moved up to Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, for those who have known me long enough, my dad died when I was 16. And so um, when I got to about 21, I just fancied a change of scenery, mm-hmm. move out, live life on my own and all of that. Um, so we moved up to Stratford-upon-Avon and got in a house share up there. Um, and like at that point, I kind of moved away from church and everything as well. So... Um, mm-hmm bit of a low kind of time really didn't know it at the time but looking back it was yeah, yeah not the right thing to do so what sort of things what did you get up to there spiritually then you say you were what was the late point you were <sighs> yeah. from the I, I was doing drugs i was seeing a lot of girls i was mm-hmm. living very selfishly like chasing money chasing work all of that mm-hmm. sort of stuff mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. And how did God bring you back? How did he sort of draw you back to himself? At what point did that happen and how Uh, how did it happen? Yeah, so I ended up in Uxbridge actually living with my grandparents there, which kind of changed my lifestyle anyway. (laughs) But but, um, I was just uh, playing on the Xbox one evening um, on a Sunday and um, I just felt God really saying to me, like, you need to go to church this evening, you need to go to church. And I was having an argument with him for a, a couple of hours um, and then actually ended up at uh, a local church in Uxbridge where Natalie Summers used to attend, um, mm-hmm. funnily enough. But, um, and yeah, just like really 
dragged me to church. He yeah. did, um, and very grateful for it. And, and how did that then change your life? What, had, what happened from there on? I started a relationship with with God at that point. Um, you know, from attending here at a young age, I'd say like I had a lot in my head, but I didn't have anything in my heart. Um, and I really felt God at that point t- took out my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, and um, just called me to worship him daily to, to pursue the things he wanted me to pursue to, to turn away from what I'd been doing um, and to like really serve others um, talk to people who had been in my situation that sort of stuff So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then um, one thing I really was keen on is, is was living amongst uh, solid people so I moved up to Manchester and um, ended up renting a room off Tim Burnham actually for six months and then getting a house around the him so um having like a, a real best friend and true brother in christ for like six years up there was a huge blessing as well yeah brilliant and then god brought you back here um how did that happen and um during lockdown i had to carry on working so like we didn't get any um we, we, there was no furlough or anything we, we had to work from home full time um and I just felt I wanted to be around like family and friends. So I came and spent lockdown working from home in um, mum's spare room. And I really enjoyed it. And so I went back to Manchester. Tim moved away. He's down in Felixstowe doing a um, course there. And um, so I just felt a little bit alone at that time. And I, I just rang my mum up and said, look, I really enjoyed lockdown and spending it all with you. Um, can I come and move in the spare room permanently? And she said, yes, <laughs> yes, you can. So um, that's, that's how I found myself back Hopefully she's not, not regretting that decision. No, not at all, no. no yeah. Rent keeps going yeah. up, but that's yeah. right. <laughs> and how's God using you now to, to, to serve him and his people? So one thing I've always been passionate about is motorcycles um, from a very young age. And I got a motorbike while I was living up in Manchester. And um, down here, I joined the CMA, which is the Christian Motorcycle Association. And um, I don't know if you see many of us, but we ride around with a great big white cross on our leather vests. And we do outreach to the motorcycling community, um, a bit like Christians in sport. Motorcycling is a, a very close-knit community. A lot of people who do biking don't really do anything else. Biking is their life. Um, but also in the biking community, you have a lot of organised crime through like the Hells Angels, people like that. You have a lot of witchcraft, Satanism and that sort of thing. So it's really good to go to <coughs> these rallies and we offer, um, like we're like a safeguarding tent. We serve like fresh water 24-7, which these events have to have. So it's an opportunity to be in there permanently. And then as part of that, we um, have prayer boxes, pray with people. There's biker Bibles, which is basically a, a New Testament with bikers' testimonies in. Um, and so we just do outreach through through that. Yeah, brilliant. And, and any stories of encouragement you want to share with us from what you're doing with CMA? Yeah, I mean, so obviously you sow the seeds and God knows when they're reaped. So we've not necessarily seen over the last year individuals coming um, in our unit, North um, Northern Ireland, a lot to the point that the Hells Angels beat them all up the other week and told them they weren't allowed to turn up to any of their events anymore. But um, we actually had more prayer requests and more Bibles taken over the last summer than, than we'd ever had any year. And one story that was really powerful, and I do, you know, if you can pray for something, that something comes from it. But a woman came into our tent at about one o'clock in the morning and her brother in um, the Isle of Wight wasn't feeling very well. 
And so we sat and we prayed for her. And she came back at about 7 o'clock in the morning and said, funnily enough, at, while we were praying, her brother had a heart attack, but the Southampton Air Ambulance were practicing right over his house. And so they were able to literally land in his back garden, get him on the air ambulance and have him on the operation table within half an hour. Yeah, amazing. And so she yeah. just came and gave thanks for that. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Well, well done for all you're doing there, and let's praise God for the way he has changed your life. Yes, uh, thanks thank very you. much for sharing, James. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Helen uh, sent me a message the other day and said, John, would you like to read this uh, on Sunday morning? And I said, yeah, no problem. Turns out there was a problem uh, in that we've got some quite tricky names here, so um, other pronunciations are available, So just so you know. But it's, it's not just a list of names, it's a wonderful thing because it's uh, a great description of, uh, of how, especially to Jewish people, how it demonstrated that uh, God uh, had uh, fulfilled his promise that he was one day going to send uh, the true Israelite, God's promised Messiah. So let's read Matthew chapter 1 uh, and the first 17 verses. Um, because of the tricky names, I've got a big version of the Bible, which is on page 1467, and if you've got a church Bible in the smaller version, it's on page 965. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of 
Elihud, Elihud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Uh, John, thank you very much indeed uh, for reading uh, for us this morning. Uh, Let me pray uh, before we uh, come to this, this bit of scripture. Heavenly Father, do thank you so much uh, that all of Scripture is breathed out by you and is suitable for teaching. And so, Father, help us all this morning uh, that we might not just see a list of names, uh, but uh, that by your Spirit you might uh, uh, reveal to us the good news of the Lord Jesus through it, the hope that we have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the uh, the run-up to Easter, we're going to be teaching on a series called The Journey to the Cross, and we'll be looking at John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, uh, this morning's sermon is uh, to help us uh, to prepare our hearts uh, for that series. And you might think it's pretty strange, uh, a pretty odd way to start a series in Lent, uh, looking at uh, what looks like a list of unpronounceable names, but there is absolute treasure uh, here, which I hope that we'll see. Now, I know that uh, quite often when we come to Scripture and we see a list uh, of names, uh, one of two things can happen, can't they? Uh, One, uh, we can scoot to the end of the list and pick up the reading at the end of the list of names. I'm sure that none of us here do that. Um, Or that we go into the list looking for inspiration for baby names. Yeah, Sheltiel, Zerubbabel, and Zadok are all available. But as we look at this, at this list of names this morning, I want us to lift out uh, three things that help prepare us uh, for our Journey to the Cross series. I want us to see uh, the big picture that Matthew gives us, uh, then the nature of humanity, that this list of names reveals, and then the hope that we all need that we find here. Big picture, the nature of humanity, and the hope that we all need. So, the big picture. Now, Matthew writes an account of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And as books go, it's had a pretty phenomenal impact uh, across the world over the last 2,000 years, and it's still having an impact uh, in the lives of people today, as James shared with us earlier on. And the way that Matthew decides to open up his book, uh, and the way that Matthew wants us to uh, understand it or enter the book, is by giving us this list, this genealogy of Jesus, the ancestry of Jesus, if you like, uh, his family tree. Now, very briefly, let's just uh, look at this list and notice uh, two things. Uh, Firstly, let's start by noticing how this book doesn't start. It doesn't start with any of these phrases. It doesn't start with once upon a time. It doesn't start in a distant kingdom, there lived a handsome prince. And it doesn't start 
at a, lo- at a time long ago in a galaxy far away. No. The account is rooted in the names of people who actually lived. Real people, real places, real times. And Matthew wants us to know that what he writes isn't a myth. It's not legend. It's not fantasy. It's not make-believe. What Matthew has to tell us is rooted and has its basis in history. It's fact. It's not fiction. Secondly, it isn't only history. Uh, Matthew's arranged this genealogy, his family tree, into, uh, into four teens to highlight that all of history has a point. History isn't aimless. History isn't pointless. But rather, God is working out his plan. The people in the midst of that plan, the people in this list, they couldn't see the purpose completely. But as we look back, we can see that all of history has been working forward to a climax. And that climax is God sending his son, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who would rescue his people. So we might understand uh, that the genealogy is all about Jesus. And that's how Matthew opens it up. He starts with Jesus in verse 1, and then in verse 17, he finishes with the Messiah again. There is no mistake, as, as Matthew presents this list to us, that this list is all about Jesus. So the names that Matthew has given us in this genealogy, this family tree, they reveal the truth, the very, the very fireable truth of what Matthew has to tell us. And it reveals the centrality of Christ in God's plan of salvation. And if that's what it can tell us about God and his plan, what can we glean from the names in this list? And that brings us to our second point. The nature of humanity revealed. Matthew starts his gospel with a family tree that goes back to people who lived 2,000 years before Jesus was born. Uh, Family trees were very important uh, to the people of Israel because it was a way of proving your pedigree, showing you were someone of note, so that you would be taken seriously. And for most of us, I mean, we don't really do family trees or genealogies anymore. Uh, We tend to prove who we are by our CV, our resume. Now, our CV... There we go. Our CV is a picture and a showcase of our life and work. And our resume, or uh, our CV, tells people, uh, the the people that we're trying to impress of all the good things that we've done, the places we've worked, uh, where we've served, where we were educated, the grades we've achieved. It's a way of bragging uh, about ourselves, isn't it, on one side of A4. And this is me but it's in Greek. And we use our resumes don't, resumes, don't we, to impress people by overstating the things that we've done or by hiding the things that we find a touch embarrassing. Failed exams, jobs we've been fired from, uh, unsavoury connections or gaps in our CV. The things that would embarrass us if they came to light. Now, there's a chap called George Santos, uh, a congressman for, uh, for New York, 
And he apologised a couple of months ago for uh, what the independent newspaper called a litany of lies about his education and his work experience. It turns out he didn't actually have a degree. Uh, He'd never graduated in the top 1% of his class and he hadn't worked at certain Wall Street investment banks that he listed on his CV. He played up his CV. And genealogies are like CVs. You really want to blot out the bits that make you look bad and big up the bits that make you look good. But the genealogy that Matthew gives us hides nothing. And it reminds us that the great people of Israel weren't actually that great. And by doing that, Matthew opens up and reveals to us what humanity is really like, what people are really like. So let's lift out uh, some of these things. We're introduced right at the start to Abraham uh, in the family tree. uh, And we were introduced to him back in Genesis. And in Genesis 12, God makes promises to Abraham, a man of 75 with a wife beyond childbearing age. And God promises that he's going to make him a great nation, that his family would grow to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And so Matthew picks out Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. But the people reading this family tree, they would have been alive to the real nature of Abraham. Abraham, the so-called man of faith, hadn't been full of faith all the time. Matthew, as it turns out, didn't really trust that God would indeed give him and his wife the children or the family that he'd promised. So he made his own plan. Him and, his, him and his wife made a plan of their own. And that was for him to sleep with his servants, uh, with uh, his wife's servant, uh, and have a baby through her. And that caused a rift in the family when God did deliver uh, a child to Sarah and Abraham. And the servant and Abraham's first child were cast out into the wilderness, not Abraham's finest hour. Then we have Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now, Isaac had a child who was not a model child at all. He was a second born, uh, so the blessings should have gone to his elder brother Esau. But Jacob used cunning to rob Esau of his birthright, and then he tricked his father into giving him his blessing. So the family tree that Jesus arrives into continues down the line of a trickster and a deceiver. Then we're told that Jacob, the father of Judah and his brother. Uh, Jacob, the trickster, is himself tricked. He's tricked into a marrying a less attractive daughter of his uncle. Uh, Jacob finds himself on the wedding day, slightly over-refreshed, in a tent uh, with poor lighting and wakes up married to the wrong woman. Not his finest hour. And the promise of God again works not through the first child of this marriage, but the fourth, Judah. So in the first two verses of the family tree, the tree into which Jesus would come, we find a doubter, a liar, and a cheater. And it gets worse. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now in verse 3 we read uh, that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, twins. Two boys, you'd imagine, on his TikTok videos, with an absolute delight, cock-a-hoop, and celebrating. You'd think all seems well. But then, almost as an aside, Matthew adds, almost unnecessarily, that the mother of these children was Tamar. 
Matthew invites us to remember another scandal. Tamar was married to the firstborn son of Judah. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Tamar's husband died and Judah promised that she could marry another one of his sons. But he didn't deliver on that promise. So Tamar uh, disguised herself as a temple prostitute to entrap Judah to sleep with her. uh, In a plot that's almost too extreme even for EastEnders. And she falls pregnant with her father-in-law's children, Perez and Zerah. So the family tree into which Jesus would come, the Messiah would come, has children of an incestuous relationship. Then we read, uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And we're introduced to Salmon, the father of Boaz. And again, Matthew goes to some pains to point out that the mother of Boaz was Rahab. Rather than airbrush out the name of Rahab, Matthew deliberately sticks it in. And Joshua, we're told, in the book of Joshua, we're told that Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. She's a racial and a moral outsider. And he goes on. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now we're told of another lady. Ruth was another outsider. She was a Moabite. She was a cultural and religious outside, outsider. Yet Matthew again decides to include what the people of Israel would have considered a blemish on their family tree. The line into which Jesus comes has a racial outsider, a moral outsider, a cultural outsider, and a religious outsider. And then Matthew hits a point that the people of Israel would have thought high point in their history. We read this in verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David. At the end of the first uh, block of 14 names, we get to King David. Uh, It's the only time in the family tree that we have a person with uh, an earthly title of king being called a king. And it seems like all's well in the family tree, with a good person stepping into a kingly role. The nation of Israel was united. It was economically and militarily strong. All seems well. But, but, Matthew's put another skeleton in the cupboard and he wants to bring it out. And he sees this as he goes on. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Again, Not content with joining the line of David to Solomon and then straight to Rehoboam in verse 7. Matthew draws us to another scandal by telling us that Solomon's mother had been the wife of another man. Uh, A little background here. Uh, David is the king uh, and he sent his army out to fight a battle. But he uh, has stayed behind in Jerusalem. Uh, One night as he wanders around his castle, uh, he looks out and he notices a beautiful woman uh, bathing on her rooftop. And David wants her for himself. Now, Matthew in this list doesn't give us uh, this lady's name. It's Bathsheba. Rather, uh, he tells us the name of the man that she was married to, one of David's soldiers. But so obsessed is David with Bathsheba that he has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed on the battlefield so that he could have Bathsheba for himself. Matthew tells us that, yeah, David was a king, but he's no saint. And that brings us to the end of the first block of 14 names. 
And the next block of 14 names, up to verse 11, uh, we have a string of other kings. Uh, Some sought to do what was right and good in the sight of the Lord, and others did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But mainly evil. These kings divided the kingdom of Israel into two, and they led them down a spiral, an ever-increasing spiral into evil. Some of these kings killed their own brothers to make sure that they could have the throne. And we see some of the kings introducing childhood sacrifice. Uh, There's much more. It's a horrible, horrible history that we can read into Chronicles. The result is that we read in verse 11 and 12 that the people's rebellion against God was so great that he kicks them out of the land that he's given them. They're sent out into exile, cast out of the land that God had given them. Matthew catches the lowest point in the history of the people of Israel. And he captures it in glorious technicolor right at the start of his book. You see, in the family tree of the one who will save the world, we don't find ancestors who are exemplars. We don't find Peter Perfects. We find villains, rogues, murderers, and the most barbarous of people. Uh, We find outsiders, religious outsiders, cultural outsiders, racial outsiders, gender outsiders, relational outsiders, and moral outsiders. It's a family tree that is marked by failure, lies, corruption, perversion, murder of young by old, sexual impropriety, abuse of power, misogyny, greed, and the constant trampling of the weak by the strong. Matthew does not polish up the family tree. He doesn't airbrush out the awkward bits. Rather, he peels back layer after layer after layer and puts everything on show. The scale of the problem of humanity is brought into light. The nature of humanity, its corruption, is revealed. And this is my problem. This is your problem. This is our problem. It's our nature. In our hearts, we have all fallen short. We've all gone our own way. It was true for the names on the list, and it's true for us as well. Left to our own devices, we don't want the things that God wants. We want what we want. And that leads to breakdown in our lives, in community, and ultimately the judgment of God. Now, you might expect that God would look down uh, from heaven and say, you people are simply terrible. I want nothing to do with you. You've made your bed, lie in it, get away from me. And maybe some of you are here this morning and you look back on your own lives and you see huge pain that you've caused yourself and others, perhaps those that you have loved dearly. You harmed other people, either directly or by association, through destructive patterns, misplaced loves, or addictions. And you feel like you've blown up your life, and you think that there's no way back. And you may even think that God has abandoned you. Now, while this family tree lays bare humanity's nature, our nature, 
It also reveals the hope that we need. The hope that we need. What is the hope that we need? Uh, If the genealogy uh, does reveal the corruption of the human heart, how, how is there hope for us to be made right with God? How, How is that possible? Now, the genealogy gives us two things. Firstly, there's an offer of rescue that's made to everyone. And secondly, it reveals that this rescue isn't earned. It's a gift that's received. So firstly, an offer to everyone. Uh, In the family tree, we see that the hope comes in the person of Jesus. Matthew starts with this as the first name in verse 1. And he ends with this, the last name in verse 17, where Jesus is referred to as the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one who rescues And all of the evil, all of the rebellion, all of the waywardness of the people of Israel is wrapped, if you like, between these two extremes, the arms of Jesus. From start to finish, Jesus' arms are stretched out around this genealogy. The saviour comes into the line that's featured the worst of humanity so that we know that the saving work of Jesus is open to all of humanity. It's open to all who would trust in Jesus. All those who would trust. There are no exclusions. There are no exceptions. There's no class. There's no tribe. There's no sexuality. There's no creed. There's no color. There's no pedigree, no wealth, no educational attainment. No looks, no disability, no gender, which puts you outside of the saving power of God's love. The healing power of God's love. And so there's nothing, nothing in our past, anything that we have done, that puts us outside of the healing power of God's love. And Matthew's horrible family tree gives us the comfort that we need to know that God's love is powerful enough to rescue each one of us if we will but turn and trust in him. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, there is a way back. And this means that we can stop our past from haunting us. We can let God heal the pain that we caused to others in the past as well as the pain that we've received in the hands of others. Because it's not our past that defines us or controls us. The certainty of knowing that God loves us and that there is a way into his arms means that we can be set free from our past. We can know God's forgiveness for ourselves and have the power to forgive others, to be healed. The genealogy shows that no one is too bad for God to save. But it also shows that there is no one who is good enough to save themselves. Even the kings of Israel needed to be saved. The hope we need is the same hope that a beggar needs. It's the same hope that a king needs. So secondly, uh, it's not down to us to earn our salvation. And we're told at the start of the genealogy that this is Jesus' genealogy. 
And that the genealogy ends with Jesus, the one who is the saviour, the one who makes us right with God. And he's the one who arrives at the perfect, appointed, pre-planned time. Now, Jesus doesn't come because humanity was good enough. He doesn't come because there's something worthy in us. No, he comes to rescue us. That everything that we need to be made right with God has been done by Jesus. And the gospel shows us what that rescue is, doesn't it? Uh, Matthew tells us that the one true son of God came to earth as a man. The infinite became finite. Divinity clothed itself in humanity. The God-man came and lived the life that we should have lived. Perfect in every way. He loved, the God, he loved God the Father with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind and with all his strength. He loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He lived the life that we should have lived. And then having lived the perfect life, Jesus took on himself the punishment that we deserve. He took that in our place. See, Jesus was cast into utter darkness. He was exiled, cast out from the land of the living so that we could be brought in to a living relationship with the Father. Even though Jesus was the only one who was ever righteous, he laid down his righteousness for us so that we could pick up his garments of righteousness and be clothed in them. So that when God the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the beauty of Christ. We're made right with God, not because of our record, but because of Christ's record. And that's why it's called a gospel. It's good news. It's not good advice about the things that we have to do to be made right. It's good news because everything that we need to be made right has been done for us. And that's why I think these 17 verses are so helpful as we ready ourselves for the Lent series, as we think about Jesus's journey to the cross, because they help us see just how terrible our rebellion against God must have been if the only way that we could be made right with God is if his one and only son comes to die in our place. So this is a a time for us to stop and to look in our own hearts at the darkness that caused the Son of God to come to die for us. And as we do that, as we reflect on that, we'll also see the incredible sacrificial love of God who would willingly send his Son to rescue us in that way. A love that came for a humanity that was waving its fist at him with a power to change and to transform lives, to break the chains that bind us. I, I wonder, do you know that love for yourself? Is that love real to you? Uh, if it is, praise God for that. Give him thanks that by the Spirit he's poured that love into your heart. Now, if it isn't, then pray. Pray as you journey towards Easter this year, as you meditate on the enormity and the sacrificial nature of God's love for you, that the Spirit would pour that love into your heart 
That you would live now in the light of that truth. Or if you're here this morning and you've never turned to Jesus, chat with me at the door on your way out. Let me buy you a coffee to chat about that truth of the Messiah who came to save, who came to save all who would turn to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Thank you for uh, the revelation of all you have done for us. Father, I do thank you that there is nothing in our past that bars us from coming to you. There's nothing that we've done. There are no places that we have been that stop us coming to know you. Thank you for that amazing love that uh, was revealed in and through the Lord Jesus, his, his work of uh, rede- redemption, redeeming us on the, through his work on the cross. Father, do pray that uh, your love for us uh, would be poured into our hearts by your spirit. Uh, set us free from the chains that bind us. Set us free from our past. Bring us into your light. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been wonderful, isn't it, to hear the, the gospel explained very clearly this morning. And uh, if the Lord has spoken to you, you want to know more about it, do please come and have a word with Saab or myself afterwards. And um, please spend the time praying as well into what you've heard as an aspect of your life that you need God's help for in that ongoing walk with the Lord. Uh, please stay for some refreshments in the hall afterwards. It'll be good to spend some time together just sharing how God is at work in our lives. But let me finish with the um, verse I read from the beginning in the, uh, the NIV translation this time. All of us also lived among them, those who were disobedient, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen.